1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for November 24th, 2021, the Thanksgiving edition. Happy Thanksgiving, dear listeners. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C. for my favorite of all holidays, the only holiday that matters. And I am so thankful to be with my dear ones, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School. Hello, Dear Emily,
2: hello, dear David. The question, though, is: Did you bake us a pie? Did your mom no. bake us a pie? My
1: mom is my mom's all over it. My mom's at pie fifteen and
3: counting, and it's only oh, Tuesday God. morning.
2: So. Amazing.
3: Can you remind me again what is the marginal pie? In other words, you got your pecan, your apple, your cranberry, yeah. your plum, your rhubarb. But I mean, once you get to fifteen, are you?
2: No, it's the mocha you butter getting- crunch.
1: There's a, well, there's a there's a there's a there's a mocha crunch Crouch. pie, which is not marginal. That's the first pie of all, the queen of pies. <laughs> the, then there's the pie of all then pies. there's the marginal ones. They'll be like uh, uh, I can the, I can never remember. Like there's one called like the Antifecken pie, which is some you know old old Celtic pie of some sort. <laughs> e- echlefecken, echlefecken, echlefecken. Oh, yeah. my
3: God. Echo That was. There'll be like a kind of
1: like apricot, uh, some apricot custard pie where you'll be like, why? Really? Did this have to happen? My mother went and got passion fruit from some, the H Mart out in, way out in Virginia, so she could make a passion fruit custard pie. And I just thought, that's not, oh, that she, is not a good use of time. So, so she's just so shopping for to draw. weird flavors. Yeah. Yeah. That's John Dickerson. Dear John Dickerson of CBS Sunday Morning. Hello, yeah. John.
3: Hello, David. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek out... Eckerflecken or, or, or Fectorwecken or whatever is my new favorite thing. It's almost like an Invermectin tumeric pie.
1: <laughs> it is. It is. It actually does. It does have restorative properties and prophylactic properties. That is oh true. God. Well, little, little little, explored, but but we will uh, be doing some clinical trials at the uh, Plots House. This week on the Gap Fest, will Joe Biden run for president again? And what will happen if he doesn't? Then the acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse and its implications for everything. And then we will be joined by our favorite Australian, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, to talk about the increasing tension between China and the democratic world and what to do about it. Plus, we will have cocktail chatter. John Dickerson, only half of Democrats would prefer Joe Biden as the party's nominee in 2024. According to a recent poll, uh, Biden turned 79 this past weekend. He'd be 82 at the beginning of a second term, 86 at the end of it. My God. Democrats are already facing a terrible 2022 map, and they are wondering what should happen in 2024. So is there always talk of replacing a president, Mm. or is this unusual strong talk and early strong talk?
3: I think, um, well, there are real reasons and political reasons. The real reasons are the ones you cite. He's the oldest. And also, I, I would add that President Biden is not a visible dynamo in the presidency. And In a country where we want, you know, one-arm push-ups on the Oval Office carpet, as you know, <laughs> I have d- deep and long views about the performance presidency and um, utility of that. So I'm not necessarily saying that's a bad thing, but in a country that that um, evaluates the presidency, the way we look for the keys under the lamppost, that's a challenge he gets that people associate with his age. There are also the political problems, which are liberals are glum, the prospects are bad for 2022. And so hobbyists and some elites are in a very speculative mood. So, you know, when people speculate, there are, you can speculate about how to run in 2022, you can speculate about Donald Trump, and you can speculate about the sitting president. And so it's always more enjoyable to confect a fantasy candidate in 2024 than to deal with what you've got to deal with. And also, I should add, since the primary system, you know, became the only way to get to the show in 1960, anyone who has ambitions has to pay attention now because you have to start fashioning your um, public image and appeal to the various factions of the party if you ever want to have any chance in the primary system should Biden choose not to run in 2024. And he said things like, I want to be a bridge to the next generation, which has made some people think that he was only going to run for one term. So I guess I would add one other thing, which is the Democrats have a lot to talk about other than this, um, but they kind of aren't very good at it. And remember all the talk during the pandemic about how people were going to be so concerned with ameliorating the deficiencies um, that had been highlighted by the pandemic? That's all getting done, or is about to get done, or should be getting done. But instead of having the vigorous conversation about that, everybody's kind of, in the political world anyway, is is wants to, you know, sort of to have these conversations.
1: I can't decide if in your categorization, we are hobbyists or elitists for speculating about this. Hmm. We are hobbyists.
3: We are elitists who (laughs) play as hobbyists.
1: Uh, So Emily, Emily, clearly if he runs, he will be the nominee. There will not be a challenge, an internal challenge that would knock him out. That has not happened in a very long time. John, you can tell us,
3: when the last time that happened was I mean, he there would be might the nominee. Be a progressive
2: candidate, right? Kennedy, like Ted Carter. Kennedy.
3: Well, but who then, won't And that's the argument why there won't be because it just yes. basically so destroyed Carter. Yes. As you look at this landscape, Emily, do you
1: do you see a world in which he backs out, in which he gives up?
2: Absent Real serious health complications? No, I think he is the nominee. I think that um, part of it is the expectation that the president will run for a second term, even if he is um, 79. And part of it is the nervousness about Kamala Harris. And I can't tell if the nervousness about Harris is just like baked in. She wasn't the deftest of politicians before she ran for vice president, Um, but she's also a black woman, and I think there's a lot of nervousness about the race and gender element of her candidacy, too, and I'm having a lot of trouble separating those two things. And also just I can't tell if some of the drama around her is just this inevitable successor in waiting that sometimes we have with vice president stories. But CNN ran a big piece, I think, last week that was all about the Biden people's sniping about her off the record, her people saying she hadn't been given enough opportunities or they weren't supporting her enough. There was just like all this underlying tension. And I think that that's going to add to pressure on President Biden to run again.
1: I mean, I, I have no Particular interest or joys about Kamala Harris, but it does feel like she kind of got hosed. I mean, she's been handed what immigration and voting reforms, which are just dead end issues right now. And what is she supposed to do? But on the other hand, she's it's a pretty lusterless administration, thank God, and she is pretty lackluster too. So it's just it's it, it doesn't seem to me that she's she's notably botched her job. It's just she's given impossible tasks, and it's a it's a pretty pretty sad miserable time to be a politician in washington and a democratic politician
3: especially so and immigration in particular
2: is so divisive and polarizing right
3: and also what does it mean to botch the i mean i'm a broken record obviously on this but what does it mean really to botch the job i mean Mm -hmm. the the problem that that kamala harris is in and the vice president sorry (laughs) that president biden is in yeah are that they are they are the leaders of a party that is frustrated and um unsettled and is a itchy coalition that i think jonathan Chait wrote a great piece surveying the series of challenges in the democratic party which you would expect in a diverse party with with lots of different kinds of people in it undergoing change in in an america that's undergoing demographic and and um and changes and changes in in or continuing challenges in opportunity so like you would expect all of this but it is um the president and vice president are the ones who have to eat that lemon all the time um, because they are the place a lot of people put their frustrations.
2: Plus COVID, plus inflation, yeah. et cetera. <laughs>
3: Right, right. You know what I thought was the most, sorry to hijack everything, but the, one of the most interesting things from the Chait article was the basically the argument that if you're a quote-unquote centrist or quote-unquote moderate or anyone who wants to distinguish yourself from the liberal cultural activists in the party, that you have jumped onto economic issues like inflation as a, not because you're actually worried about inflation, but that it's a signaling device not to show your voters that you're quote unquote, moderate or centrist, but basically to show that you're not culturally aligned with the cultural forces at the very far left part of the Democratic Party, which I thought was a, an additional layer of of um, subtlety that was an interesting part of that piece.
1: One of the things that is odd that we are here leading our show with this topic and that everyone's talking about this topic is just it's pretty clear that nothing could possibly happen on this till after 2022 anyway, it's not that Bi- – Bi- there's no chance Biden is in, you know, March of 2022 going to be like, oh, you know what, guys, I'm out. There's just no chance he does that. If he decides he's not going to run, that would happen well after the midterms or at some point after the midterms. I mean, isn't so it a perfect
2: Thanksgiving just- topic? It's like everyone can have an opinion. It's very thin on facts. I mean, we are totally guilty of this as well. It's sort of – an easy, cheap topic, as opposed to like having to dig in and learn a lot about like exactly what might be wrong with you know childcare policy and the Build Back Better legislation. It just seems like one of those things that is like uh, an evergreen; that it's going to come around the cycle. There's going to be a moment where there are some news stories, and we latch onto it.
1: Well, should we just stop now? I think let's maybe. just stop. Okay, let's <laughs> no, just stop. No, John can that, say one more thing. Well, we could just end, things. let's just end the segment right there, just, no, no, but, end it. Uh, Seriously. No, go ahead, John, fine.
3: You know, this is the easiest place to land, but it is one of those things, as Amanda Ripley has written in her book about high conflict, you know, the fight about the crockpot is not about the crockpot. So, in some ways this is not just about Biden's actual age oldest president and those real reasons you might be talking about this but it's about this other thing so to the extent that it is a signifier of an unresolved tension in the party it is both it can be both frivolous and meaningful because it it in a way shows how hard it is for the democratic party to deal with this moment of politics and also of of policy i mean the president has actually done a lot. There is much to talk about that isn't just, oh gosh, why isn't the Build Back Better plan passed? But I just wonder, I guess here's where I'll finally land and shut up, is whether these the kinds of slightly more high-minded conversations can ever take place anymore, or whether we've become so addicted to snacking that we're just going to constantly snack, and never more so when there are complicated, unresolved things that are really hard to to uh, talk through.
4: Yeah. Do
1: you
3: guys feel better when you've,
1: like at the end of a day, if you've had a day where you've snacked and then eaten a sort of less ambitious meal, or you haven't snacked and then eaten an ambitious meal? I don't think it's, I, I think it's much of a muchness.
3: I'm very happy to snack. Is this, are you, are, are, we, are we metaphorically eating here? Or no, are you I talking think about David's literal, gone to actual eating. Literally. I don't know that I have an opinion on this question i think I that like
2: snacking it, can make you feel fine if you actually do it in a limited way but if you really are just grazing through the whole day i don't know Hmm.
1: hmm. okay i think if you as a non-snacker emily that you that you're disciplined that you don't snack well
2: when i used to go to an office i never snacked but when i work at my house i snack uh
1: okay okay <laughs> Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the Gabfest. So many good bonus segments that we've been throwing at you here on Slate Plus recently. If you go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus, you can join, become a member today. It's just a dollar for the first month. And in addition to our bonus segments, you get no ads on any Slate podcast. You get whole bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn, which is in the midst of a great new season. And you're going to support the work that we're doing here on the GabFest. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus and become a member. And this week we got a really a doozy. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Malcolm Turnbull, who was the prime minister of Australia is going to talk to us about what it's like to be prime minister, not the kind of sexy parts, but the mundane aspects of life as leader of a country. Like, do you ever get to hang out with your real friends or is the food good? Things like that. So, looking forward to learning about what it's like to be, to run a country from a uh, trivial perspective. So go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is the Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. The acquittal of Kyle Rittenhouse has prompted an extraordinary outpouring from left and right, from the left rage that the law is so lax and insentient that it encourages people to act like vigilantes, to carry the most dangerous possible weapons everywhere, and then excuses deadly violence when that provocation explodes and that it also treats a young white person differently than it might treat somebody else who did the same thing. Um, from the right, a celebration of Rittenhouse as a hero who protected his community. It wasn't his community, but whatever, took on lawlessness and did positive good in the world. I personally, and I think Emily was not, but I was really moved by something that David French wrote in The Atlantic that said the acquittal might be a legitimate outcome Quote, an acquittal does not make a foolish man a hero. A political movement that turns a deadly and ineffective vigilante into a role model is a movement that's courting more violence and encouraging more young men to recklessly brandish weapons in dangerous places, and that will spill more blood in America's streets. We also, of course, have the backdrop of the Ahmad Arbery case, which has just gone to the jury as we're talking, or the jury is now deliberating in that case. Another case involving the a murder of people who— Person. People. Person by, by people who were believed they were acting in some sort of protective way. I don't know. Well, it's I mean,
2: another uh, instance of vigilante justice gone terribly awry.
1: So, Emily, just do, do you want to start with the? It was the written house verdict legally legitimate, and if it was, does that mean that the law is wrong?
2: Uh, When I read the jury instructions in the Rittenhouse case, uh, I thought he would be acquitted because there is no duty to retreat in Wisconsin. And if you feel like you are being threatened, you can raise the defense of self-defense and you have the right to use proportionate force if you think that you could be killed or threatened with grave bodily harm. And there is no sort of escape clause or other way of thinking about it if you're the one who initially provoked what ends up being your your feeling of being attacked. And so I think what ended up happening because of the legal constraints was that all of the focus was on the seconds or minutes right before Rittenhouse killed two people and then wounded someone else by shooting him in the shoulder. As opposed to the sort of, if you take the lens back, then you see a 17-year-old waving around an assault rifle that he wasn't trained to use, claiming to have shown up at these um, protests because of the police um, shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. And he said he was there to provide you know, medical help, but he didn't have any training. And so when you imagine this kid waving around this gun, it seems like that is a provocation that should somehow – at least factor into your claim of self-defense and it kind of didn't and so that's the part of what David French said that I do agree with I mean there is something wrong like I get why self-defense exists it's an important legal protection on the other hand there's something incompatible about waving around an assault rifle in this, you know, very fraught kind of chaotic environment and then not being held at all responsible when two people die and another person is injured.
3: Do you, when you say waving around, do you mean that literally or do you mean that, because isn't the key crucial distinction that, or the argument French is making is even carrying it strapped on you and not touching it is effectively creating a waving around. In other words, effectively creating a condition of of menace that then provokes the kind of situation that destabilizes the existing law about self-defense. Yeah,
2: you're right, John. Thanks. That is a helpful clarification. And I think what what troubles me, and I assume a lot of people so much about this, is that, so the first person who sort of ran toward Rittenhouse, you know, maybe that response was, had more to do with that person's mental condition. But after that, once he has killed someone, the other people who are trying to stop him are presumably doing so to protect the people around them. And the idea that you would be in this position where someone has a gun, they have just shot someone, and you're trying to prevent future harm, but then your death or injury does not create any kind of criminal liability for the person who shot you, like, that just seems like it cannot be right.
3: That That's the thing that strikes me. When I... um you know, looked through each of the three who were shot and, and the successful case that was made that, um, that Rittenhouse had uh, at least a reasonable, pers- reasonable person's view that they were in danger. What struck me is the exchange with, with Grasskurtz, the fellow who had a, a gun, he had a permit, it was apparently expired, but anyway, he has a gun, and the split-second encounter keeping in mind the narrative that the NRA has put forward for so long that a good guy with a gun beats a bad guy with a gun. goes to your point, Emily. How, it can't possibly be right, and this is a distinct question from whether the, the, given the rules at the time, the verdict was a quote-unquote fair one, how do we have a situation in which two people in the heat of it have to adjudicate who gets to fire and who gets to shoot? I mean, and when you hear the back and forth of what happened, it relied basically on the sorting of two highly amped up people, as David French wrote, public peace thus rests in the snap judgments of untrained men and women in times of extreme stress.
2: Wait, It's not going to work.
1: The thing that to me is so <laughs> weird and perverse about this is if Gross Kurtz had shot and killed Rittenhouse, he would not be no, he wouldn't be guilty of a crime either, by the standard, right? He would have been acting in self-defense for him. So you have a situation where basically anyone, anyone involved in this could commit any act of murder and there was no crime to be had anywhere. And that is, it's bizarre that, that we, we've reached that point.
2: Right, and it's because we have these rules about self-defense and the idea that you're supposed to be able to respond if you're threatened. And then we have created a society in which people are carrying guns. And what I take issue with um, with David French and other people who are advocates for gun rights is, They want to imagine a world in which gun rights translate into responsible use and responsible carrying and bearing of arms. And I mean, I don't know, when you have more guns than human beings in a country, is that ever really possible? And French makes this distinction that's important to him between concealed carry, where you have a permit, you have the gun on your person, but other people don't know you have it, and open carry, which creates more intimidation because other people see the gun and they react to it. But my concern is that even in a world of concealed carry, the more guns there are, the more people think that someone could be carrying a weapon, the more excuse you have for what you claim to be self defense and all you have to do is go back to the George Zimmerman trial another acquittal after Zimmerman killed Trayvon Martin to remember what that was like Martin didn't have a gun but you know Zimmerman claimed he was under threat and of course all of the kind of racial bias and concern about young black men factors into who we see as threatening and why and i just I can't help thinking, but that, that that the more guns there are out in society, the more we've created the underlying conditions for these, this misapplication of self defense law. Yeah,
1: yes, the more guns there are, for sure, that is true. But I I don't think it's I don't think you can just toss away that distinction between open carry and concealed carry. There is something chilling to a free society at the idea of people walking around carrying guns, and not really guns like the kind of people who carry these guns openly are often carrying very powerful guns, like AR-15 style guns. And when people walk around with such things, it it does not increase anyone's liberty. It oppresses liberty because other people are not able to speak. They're not able to protest. They're not able to express themselves because you cannot have free speech when someone else has a a loaded gun next to you. It's just not, it doesn't work. And it's truly accelerated and heightened the conflict in this country, to have lots of armed people walking around publicly armed in a way that concealed carry is problematic, and I, I hate it, and I don't like the, the proliferation of guns, but it doesn't have the same chilling effect on people's right to protest and be out and say the things they want to say and, and sort of conduct themselves as free citizens, that, that the people who walk into Ar- RBs, 10 of them carrying, a, carrying a AR-15s, does have a chilling effect.
2: I mean, that's fine. I basically agree. I just think that it is the proliferation of weapons, the idea that people could be armed, as well as the weapons that you can actually see that are having this del- deleterious effect. And basically, these cases, these killings, are one of the costs of all of the weapons that we have in the country. And I have no idea what to do about this. I mean, I, you know, The efforts to legislate to restrict people's gun ownership have become politically very difficult. Some states still have them. Those states have shown real benefits, especially in reducing the rate of suicide, but also in gun injuries to other people. And it is entirely possible that the Supreme Court, when it rules on this New York case that we talked about a few weeks ago, is going to make it much harder for states to have those kinds of laws. And it just seems like this country is determined right now to put itself on a course where there is more danger in situations like this. Right,
1: right. We're loading it up. Like we're expanding, expand the right to carry a gun, expand the notion of self-defense, expand the notion of stand, stand your ground, get rid of a duty to retreat. It's like every single direct, every single arrow is pointing in one direction and it's it's terrifying.
3: Which, which will just invite the other side to come up fully bristling and with arms, um, so that you'll have these standoffs, uh, and standoffs don't usually result in, you know, agreements to meet at the next Thanksgiving and join in a hearty meal together. Emily, can I get your view of the, of the actual verdict? You mentioned the 36 page instructions. Do you feel like, which of it is it, that basically justice was done given the, the holes that could be poked in the three victims, which was about determining whether Rittenhouse had a a right to be afraid? Was it that the instructions were written in a way so that that became inevitable? Um, and, and and well, I guess those that's enough. We'll I mean, no,
2: I think the instructions basically accurately reflected Wisconsin law. I think the judge made some decisions mm-hmm. along the way in the trial that uh, did not help the prosecution. So you can imagine a possible different outcome. But I'm I mean, look, I'm also someone who doesn't care very much about retribution in general. So it is horrifying to me that Rittenhouse has become a kind of folk hero. To me personally, how long he goes to prison for, like, I just, that's not something that moves me. So in that sense, like, I can live with the result. I just think there is something deeply wrong with the way our self defense law is interacting. Like, it's incompatible. Right. And that's what really bothers me about the case. I do want to also talk about the Ahmad Arbery case because, in some ways, it is. The facts of that case are even more frightening. I mean, you have a black man running through a neighborhood and you have these two, three in the end white men just chasing him, going after him. He is running away from them and they shot and killed him. And it was based on this citizens arrest law in Georgia, which I'm glad to say has since been revoked or pulled back because I think state officials were kind of horrified at what it had yielded in this situation. But the vigilantism of this incident is, I don't know, I I know I'm like a white woman. And if I was running around a neighborhood, the chances that it would be me, are smaller, but it just seems really scary that you have armed people taking the law into their own hands like this. And, you know, that's a case in which we have this jury that has 11 white people and only one black person in it. There's been very little mention of race in the story, and yet it seems integral. And if that jury fails to convict, then the sort of opening for vigilante justice that I think we see in the Rittenhouse case becomes ever
0: wider.
5: No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void are prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.
1: We are joined now by our favorite Australian listener, former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm is in the U.S. He is making his first visit to the U.S. since the pandemic. So welcome, Malcolm. And thank you. We're going to talk not about Australia or the United States. Well, we will talk about Australia, the Australian United States, but about China because Malcolm, you as part of your post prime ministerial life and your prime ministerial life have been thinking a lot about China and its influence on the world and how countries uh, Democratic countries like yours and ours can engage successfully with China. So um, You gave a really good lecture the Ditchley lecture about partially about China a few months ago Talk about what is the what is the fundamental nature of the conflict between China and the US and Australia these days?
4: It boils down to a difference in values uh... China is run by the Communist Party. Obviously, the Communist Party is the government. It's a Leninist party. It is very authoritarian. We've seen that both domestically uh, and, of course, increasingly internationally. Uh, the, the reality is that we all assumed that as China became more prosperous, as it engaged more with the world, as trade increased, it would liberalise. That was the single biggest assumption underpinning all of the China policies. And of course, it turned out to be wrong. Uh, China has, in fact, become more authoritarian under President Xi. So that is the that is the big difference. And the reality is, we're not going to change China, or very unlikely to, other than by perhaps offering a better example. So the important thing is to ensure that China doesn't change us.
3: Malcolm, why did we, we get that wrong? And tell me who we is. Is this a we like Uh, The West got wrong about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, which is to say it's a collective failure Or was it a failure of a narrower? group in evaluating China that might still be embedded in our Evaluations today and that we might need to correct to see China more clearly
4: John. I think it was very widespread Certainly in the United States certainly, you know the Clinton administration uh, Which you know ushered China into the World Trade Organization certainly took that view I think it was a combination of learning from past experience of other developing countries that had become more liberal in their economic activities and had become more liberal politically. And also, I think, a very, very big dose of wishful thinking.
1: Do you think, Malcolm, there's any chance that it's just too early, that it's still to come? Or do you think, no, this is this is the path that China is on and it's it's successful, this path, and so this liberalization and openness will not ever come, or will not ever
4: come in a reasonable timeline. Well, look, it, it, it's to uh, uh, quote Joe and lie, it's too early to tell, so something he said when asked about the consequences of the French Revolution. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reality is, is this, that we, we don't know Back in the early 90s, when I was doing quite a bit of business in China, uh, in the mining sector, so I was getting out into the countryside, you know, talking to geological bureaus, you know, long, way away from Beijing. My view was that China would evolve into more of a federal system. The provinces seemed so big, any number of them with populations bigger than most European countries, for example. Uh, And I, I thought it would become more diverse more like a federation. I couldn't have been more wrong. I think what's happened is that the technologies that we thought would provide greater freedom, and which have, the internet in particular, has enabled the central government to exert much stronger control. So, you know, who knows what the future holds, but in the meantime, we just have to recognise that we have a different view of the world and different values and, that we have to, uh, if you like, understand there, sh- there are boundaries of trust. You know, I mean, I don't think it's smart to turn this into a Manichaean, Cold War, evil empire type of thing. I think that's, that's wrong. We simply need to say that there are areas in which we can, we will work with China in a constructive, you know, productive relationship. Obviously, climate change is one. We're all in the same boat, that is to say, on the same planet. Uh, But there are others where we have to be more circumspect. And, you know, that's why when I was prime minister, I banned Chinese vendors from participating in 5G in Australia. You know, nothing personal. I wasn't pointing to a smoking gun. I was pointing to a loaded gun. You just have to hedge your risks and recognize there are boundaries of trust within which you have to operate.
6: So
2: given your estimation of the difference in worldview and the fact that China is Ginormous, and Australia is super important but not huge. What are the costs to Australia? I mean, what kind of economic uh, trade-offs are there in trying to distance the country from the Chinese? Are there sanctions that then come into play, costs, or is that something that actually is um, something that the economic industries are able to deflect? How has that played out?
4: Look, I think one important point I should make is about language. You know, we talk about China and we talk about Chinese when we're talking about the Chinese government. But the reality is that there are, you know, well over one and a quarter, maybe one and a half million Australians of Chinese heritage. You couldn't manage, imagine modern Australia without them. You know, the people on, in Taiwan, the people who are protesting in Hong Kong are Chinese. You know, their problem is with the government of China, the Communist Party. So we've always got to draw that distinction between China's government and Chinese people, of whom you know, there are you know, many millions uh, all around the world, including in this country and, and in mine. In terms of the sanctions, what the Chinese government has sought to do is to make an example of Australia, They thought we were presumptuous and impertinent in objecting to their island building in the South China Sea. Uh, They resented the fact that we banned Huawei. Uh, They resented the fact that we introduced foreign interference and foreign influence laws that required people who were, you know, working on behalf of foreign governments or foreign political parties to actually put their name on a register. Didn't seem to me to be an unreasonable thing to do, but they cut up rough about that. Then when my successor... Scott Morrison s- suggested there should be an inquiry into the origins of the virus. They went ballistic. No, it was a massive overreaction. So we have had trade sanctions imposed on us. You know, on wine, on barley, on coal for a period, on beef. Has it had an impact? Yes, it's had an impact, but not nearly as big as they thought it would economically. And of course, it's been completely counterproductive. You know, it's a, it's a little bit. their, their aggressive foreign policy and the systematic overreaction to any slight or discourtesy, real or imagined, only serves to confirm people's negative views. You know, China is less admired and less trusted around the world now than it was a decade ago. They seem to overlook, have overlooked the fact that foreign policy and diplomacy should be about winning friends and influencing people, not rubbing people up the wrong way, which is what they've done.
3: Picking up on that, Malcolm, I made a, a claim last week that was based on something officials had told me, and I wonder if it's connected to what you're saying or if there's more subtlety to it, mm. but that there was a there was a other side of the coin with that, which is that China responded to and was nervous about its image in the globe, that that sensitivity allowed some leverage for the West to say, hey, if you want to be uh, the kind of nation that you seem to Think of yourself as, then you must get in line with the following kinds of behaviors. Um, is that right? Do do they? You've you've talked about how they overreact in the one way. Are they sensitive in a way that might be useful?
4: Uh, in terms of China's image, look, they do put a big effort into uh, their image, but it's it's a little bit it's a little bit self contradictory because the the overreaction, you know, the ferocious. Counterblasts when anyone says or does something that's uh, they regard as being disrespectful uh, is you know it, it looks it looks it looks counterproductive. I think it is, but it's designed to intimidate people. So it's designed to say, you know, if you say something uh, that we don't like, if you criticise us, we will be so ferocious that you will in the future not do so because you say, oh my God, it's not worth the. The, you know, the grief, the storm and and uh, trouble. So th- the bottom line is, look, whether you're in the playground at school or in business or in geopolitics, you can't give in to bullies. Because if you give in to bullies once, you just get bullied more.
3: And then finally, can you just remind people why the South China Sea is such a nervous-making um, set a bit of activity for the Chinese? I mean, why the West yeah, should well, care.
4: Well, the South China Sea is... The, you know, the body of water between China, uh, Vietnam, the Philippines, Indonesia and the Malay Peninsula, broadly speaking. A huge percentage of the world's trade goes through it. Uh, It is of vital significance. There are a series of islands and reefs in it that several nations have claimed, but China most recently has been asserting effectively that the whole South China Sea is theirs And have been uh, asserting claims to uh, islands and reefs, and in fact, building islands. They're in effect building unsinkable aircraft carriers in the South China Sea in defiance of international law. In fact, the Philippines, under the previous president, took them to the Court of Arbitration in The Hague, and they lost. China lost and will not abide by that. So, this is, you know, this has been bully boy tactics you know it's a it's a vital strategic area and you you can make the case that uh, the United States and its its allies should have done more to stop it happening you know five or six seven years ago
2: I mean American businesses have mostly been very reluctant to stand up to China in that way. There's this story playing out right now with the professional tennis player Peng Shui, who has made this me too accusation of sexual assault against a very important Chinese official. And I should say the accusations that Shui made against this um, powerful Chinese official have been erased from the Chinese Internet. And there are questions about whether she is freely able to speak right now. We haven't heard from her directly. And I can't tell yet whether the international um, sports community is going to stand up for her or not. It seems like the International Olympics Committee is trying to say, well, she's OK, whereas the WTA, the World Tennis Association, has been much more concerned and suggesting that since we're not hearing from her directly, maybe she is really not OK. And I just wonder if you think that that is a story that might be able to change the dynamic and make international um, business organizations more brave about standing up to China in situations like this?
4: Well, it, it, it could, Emily, but of course, it's the money. China is a gigantic market, and so business is wanting to protect its position there. And and uh, all too often, you know, important principles are compromised for the sake of profit. But, you know, really, you've, we've got to decide whether we want to be bullied. And I mean, I mean, if you criticize the, you know, the government of the United States, the typical American reaction would be, take a, take a ticket. It's a long queue. You know, everyone's critical of us. I mean, it's this indignation designed to intimidate people into not criticising them.
1: Malcolm Turnbull is the former Prime Minister of Australia. He's also going to join us for our Slate Plus segment shortly. Malcolm, thank you. Thanks. Let us go to cocktail chatter when you're fretting about China and wanting to drink away your anxiety about China, Emily. What are you going to be chattering about?
2: I am reading such a delightful novel right now, Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr. It is transportive, it has all these different time periods and universes in it. I am assured from the book reviews that they will all braid together in the end, but so far they haven't, and I'm really happy just following them all separately. So if you're just looking for a good kind of escapist but literary piece of fiction, I really recommend it. Cloud Cuckoo Land, Anthony Doerr. He's the author also of All the Light We Cannot See.
1: Cloud, Cloud books are good at braiding time. Cloud Atlas, braided time. Clouds. If you have clouds in your title, cloud
2: atlas is excellent. You're you know, that's probably time. part of why I like this book is because I associate it with, and it's a little bit cloud atlas like, actually. Ooh. Well, not really, but
1: a little. Ooh, ooh. JD, what is your chatter?
3: My chatter has been slightly de- delayed because I um, made the mistake of trying to read something I tweeted on the Washington Post through Twitter, and every time I do that, it asks me to subscribe. So I now have 734 subscriptions to the Washington Post. My chatter is about a Washington Post story, which you can fight through the thicket to get through if you try to read it through Twitter, or you can go through some other thing like a website. Anyway, it is about uh, the poor story of Wendy Wine, who was on the lookout for a professional killer that she tried to hire to um, kill her ex-husband. She tried to hire the professional killer on rentahitman.com, a website called rentahitman.com, which had a HIPAA policy which was not uh, HIPAA, which protects the privacy of medical records, but was the Hitman Information Privacy and Protection Act of 1964. There is no such act. This website, which you would think would only be used by the dumbest among us, has had about 650 to 700 people who have contacted the website and 400 who have filled out the form, which requires giving your name, your email address, and your phone number. And... (laughs) The oh owner God. of this for the owner of this website, fifty-four-year-old Northern California man named Bob Innes, um, who pr- who presented himself as Guido Finelli, basically turns over people like Wendy, who is now serving nine years in prison, to the Feds. Um, and because they're dumb enough to uh, try to hire a hitman, but their intention is not um, blocked by their stupidity, because their intention is to actually get people killed. Um, anyway, not exactly a Thanksgiving story, but perhaps one that you can, um, talk about at the, at the table instead of, um, whatever other political hobbyisting you might uh, be talking about. That
1: is amazing. I saw you tweet that and I just didn't, I didn't follow the link and now I will, but I guess 600 to 700 people, the dumbest among us, you know, that's still, that's still pretty low bottom 1%. But where, if you were going to try to hire hitmen, what would you do? Where would you go? Where would you go? You don't want to google it. You don't want to leave you don't want to leave internet breadcrumbs for everybody. Man,
2: I think most of us would be kind of lost in that moment actually.
1: Yeah. Well, if any
2: Many of us. I hope many of us would be lost. Any people who have yeah.
1: successfully hired a hitman, just email us directly using your real name. How
2: to? Ha- no, just, <laughs> don't do that.
1: No, this is I'm doing my own rent a hitman. I'm doing my own hire were. a hitman <laughs> thing.
2: I got nervous about our liability there for a second. Okay,
3: family for saving us.
1: My chatter actually is something somebody sent me. um, A Gaffest listener sent me, which is a it's a internet game for Thanksgiving called Thanksiety. T a t h a n x i e t y, and what it is, it's a just a very simple little thing you you can have on your computer. You just press a button, and it cycles and gives you. Questions to talk about at Thanksgiving that have nothing to do with politics and that are meaningful and nice and so there are there some of them are trivial like like uh, you know what's your favorite Thanksgiving recipe of all time or what obscure item did you beg your parents to buy you when you were younger? you know what's a business that you would you, you would start if you could start any kind of business? Some are more Philosophical, like, or, or or some are hypotheticals. Like, you're in England in the year 1600. You decide to sail to the Americas or stay put. Uh, what's something legal that should be illegal, or something illegal that should be legalized? And it's a bunch of nice questions that that you know would be. I don't happen to have a Thanksgiving dinner table, which is fraught. But if I did, these would be nice questions to have. So check out uh, Thanksiety.
3: Um This
2: is the
1: best idea
3: ever. It is, but but I want to just say that. Didn't I? I emailed you guys earlier in the week and said, "You know, we should do our chatters about things that people can talk about at th- that are non-political at their uh, at their Thanksgiving in case they have a fraught family." And so here you've done it. You've kind of done it even though you ignored me. <laughs>
2: and we get to have Malcolm Turnbull in our slate plus. So, twofer.
3: There you go. Mine was going to be a tweet thread by um uh, his name, I think, is Zach Budrick, um, which is his question was, what bit of historical perspective gives you an existential crisis? And his was that Harriet Tubman was born in Thomas Jefferson's lifetime and died in Reagan's.
1: Wait, Harriet Tubman died while Reagan was alive? She
3: lived to Lifetime, the... yeah. She wow. Really? Wait. That's, I'm, that's- Really? All the right. big I'm one that like, gets- I'm looking like, the, this. The, the, the other one that people do that with is that, The samurai could have sent faxes because apparently fax machine technology existed. Basically, the fax machine technology existed in something like 1848.
2: Okay, but John, she died in 1913.
3: Okay. Well then oh. Ronald Reagan was alive. Well, he was alive.
2: Okay. Alive.
1: So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. why I said lifetime yeah. twice. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. No, all right. no, fine. I know. I just, That's
2: all fine. I I got mixed up. I thought we were talking about his presidency. Here's my, I was like this cannot uh, be true. Here's the
3: other one that <laughs> and then I'll shut up. France conducted its last state guillotine the year Star Wars was released. Hmm. There's many people
1: argue that the guillotine is the most humane form of execution. So.
2: I knew you were going to go. Anyway,
1: there. so listeners, you send us your chatters every week. Please keep them coming by tweeting them to us at @slategapfest. And our listener chatter this week comes from Keith Watabayashi, and it's amazing.
6: Hey, Political Gab Fest. This is Keith, longtime fan. It's awesome to be here for cocktails. Uh, My chatter is from a Twitter account called Hieronymus Burps, which posted about a Wired magazine circa 1997 titled The Long Boom, which was a really big story about the utopia that the internet and tech culture and all the great good things that were happening were going to carry the world and society and humanity into this next great phase where everything would be great. But the thrust of the Twitter post is that there's one section that says the top 10 things that could derail this boom. And it's essentially... 10 warnings or 10 events that could ruin the long boom. And if you look at that, you might recognize all 10 of those events as modern day news headlines. So check it out in case you need a reminder of the fresh hell we are living in.
1: It's amazing. It's when you look at those 10 things, you're like, Oh my God, you know, it lists pandemic. It lists that the, the technological tools are, are deployed or taken over by dictators who use them for different purposes. It, it is. It's just. It's shocking to see that's predictive at a moment of kind of full internet optimism, optimism craziness that Wired embodied in the mid '90s. Then predicting, oh, these are the things. These are the things could possibly be little bumps on the way to the long boom. And, and it's like, oh yeah, now we we are living in this. It's, it's definitely check it out. That is our show for today. The Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. But this week, our researcher is Shayna Elliott. Thank you, Shayna, for stepping in this Thanksgiving week. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. And Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Please follow us on Twitter at, at SlateGapFest and tweet and chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. Have a happy Thanksgiving if you celebrate it and uh we're we're all thankful for you so we are thankful for you and we are thankful that we'll get a chance to talk to you next week bye bye hello slate plus how are you uh happy thanksgiving to you too um so malcolm turnbull continues with us here so malcolm is a private citizen now but he was the prime minister of australia and we he and I saw each other this week in Washington and and Malcolm, you and your wife were delightful on the subject of the house that the Australian prime minister lives in. And it made me think about all the mundane details of life as the leader of a country. And we rarely get a chance to talk rarely as a never get a chance to talk to someone who is the leader of a country. So we want to ask you mundane questions. So, number one, how is the food at summits?
4: Uh, It varies. Uh, It generally has a national uh, flavor to it, the few uh, specialités de la région uh, in every uh, summit.
2: When you're being the prime minister of a country, do you ever feel like you just get to be your normal self, like your normal schlubby self, if you are at all schlubby? I mean, are you just constantly on that, having that feeling like when you're at a conference or a treat or something and you're moving from one thing to the next and you never just get to like let your guard down and just like, I don't know, yeah, do it, it, whatever the thing is that makes you feel completely relaxed.
4: Well, look, I, I got into politics when I was 50. And so I didn't really have as many politicians do a whole lifetime beforehand of being incredibly self-conscious and sort of manufacturing a Persona, so it was too late for me to be anything other than myself. So I think I look. I think I was, I was, I was just, I honestly just pretty relaxed. The fundamental fundamental lesson I think in politics is uh, just to be yourself. I mean, authenticity is key. Now the problem is if you are, or if you are authentically a very unpleasant person, then maybe (laughs) you should choose a different line of work. (laughs)
3: Malcolm, there was once a conversation between uh, David Cameron and Barack Obama. It was caught on a hot mic in which they were both basically saying, you know, their calendars got so much filled up, so much they never had time to think. Did you experience that?
4: Look, it it is a real issue, and I used to say to my staff, uh, rule one: don't kill the candidate, (laughs) right? Because so I used to say, if you have me on the road starting off with a breakfast at seven o'clock and ending with a dinner that finishes at 11 pm i am not going to be performing at my best i mean the critical thing about uh politics is particularly political leadership is that firstly you're making very important decisions so you've got to be rested you've got to you know you've got to have your brain operating at top capacity and secondly, in terms of the performative part of it, it's showbiz, right? You, you, if, you, if you go out and do interviews, speeches and stuff when you're tired, you will make mistakes and you look tired. All of the, the you know, the, the sort of gaffes, slips, blunders I've made in, in interviews have always been when I've been tired. So, you know, that you've got to get your rest. And there is no virtue in working ridiculously long hours because... You know, you're not some trying to be some kind of, you know, junior lawyer in a big law firm (laughs) trying to impress the senior partner. You've got to bring the best of your intellect to bear for the people whom you serve. And that means, you know, being in top form.
1: How often did you get to hang out with your real friends?
4: Quite a bit. It's a very good bit of advice was given to me before I went into Parliament which was hang on to your friends because you'll never make any new friends in politics. That's not entirely true in my case, but it's almost tr- entirely true.
1: And you were, but you were able when you, even when you were working as prime minister, you'd be like, hey, you know, Joe, come on over, come on over to the lodge tonight, let's hang out.
4: Well, yeah, I didn't spend a lot of time in Canberra to be honest, but I, and the people I hung out with in Canberra were all in politics, and a few of them, like you know, Julie Bishop, Christopher Pine were both good friends, and there were some others, but but uh, most of my, you know, old, long-standing friends are in Sydney, where, where Lucy and I live.
2: Do you end up just having a ton of interactions with people where they clearly want something from you or are awed by you, or there's just that weird awkwardness of trying to a little bit put on a performance where you feel like you have to be super nice but it's all very artificial or do you get protected from that if you're prime minister
4: look australia is a is a much less deferential country than the united states you know i mean nobody uh, honestly hardly anyone ever calls me mr turnbull and i'm 67 you know even even kids i you know i see on the train or the ferry you know will come up and say hi malcolm so it's not a GabFest fans, that
1: was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
0: With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no,
4: nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky.
0: Play for free at Luckylandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
5: Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th.